You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Welcome. My name is Skip Richter. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Redeemer, and I have the privilege of bringing the word this morning. First of all, I want to congratulate all fathers on Father's Day, this day when we honor and, and recognize you. What an incredible privilege to be given the opportunity to love and lay down our lives for our wives and children. I just pray God's blessing on you as you do that. Today, we're going to be getting into James in a little bit, uh, talking about in chapter four. But I want to give a little background first. The letter of James is really good at touching us right where we live, providing wisdom, exhortation, direction, and correction in living the Christian life. James doesn't pull any punches. He strikes right at the heart of those of us who desire to live a life in Christ, but still struggle with sin. James was the brother of Jesus, and the book of James perhaps contains more direct connections to the word of Jesus and gospels like Matthew than any other book in the New Testament. He's writing to Jewish believers who'd been scattered among many nations in the region. They were being mistreated by wealthy landlords who took advantage of them, but they were also mistreating each other. James addresses the issue of God's people turning their focus from, and their affections from God to pursue their own desires. Right off the bat in chapter one, he says that true religion is number one, acting in mercy toward vulnerable suffering people around us, and number two, keeping ourselves unstained by this world system where God is out of view and people pursue their own wishes. Over and over again throughout the book, James drives home the point that if we become children of God, transformed by God, it will affect the way we live. The book of James has had a rocky reputation at times in the church. The primary reason is that while Paul focused on the fact that we are saved by faith and not works, James says that faith without works is dead. These points can appear contradictory, but actually are two sides joined together in a coin. Whichever side of the coin is up depends on what the issues of the gospel were at that time that were being ignored or denied. Paul faced constant opposition from Jewish leaders who detested the message of the cross, of Christ's complete work, his death and resurrection, and his fulfilling all requirements of the law for us. Also from the Judaizers who sought to add Jesus plus works as a way to salvation. God's word is clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I like the way Jonathan Edwards put it. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. As with salvation, our lifelong process of sanctification or becoming more like Jesus is also the work of God in us, not the result of our own virtues or abilities. As Paul so clearly reminded the Galatians when he asked, having begun by the Spirit, are you now gonna be perfected by the flesh? Martin Luther 
also faced a church system that added numerous requirements to faith for salvation. He knew that trying to be good enough to deserve heaven was, as George Whitfield put it, like trying to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. Because of the pervasive teaching of the church of his day, that our works are part of our salvation, Luther was not a fan of James connecting faith and works. However, James faced a different problem. His readers were clear on how to be saved. They were well-versed in the message of the cross and the fact that we're saved by faith in Christ, not works of righteousness that we perform. To put it simply, they understood the message of faith, not works, but were blind to the equal truth of faith that works. In other words, real faith is accompanied by a change in how we live because the same Spirit of God that brings salvation to our hearts and indwells us in our lives is the Spirit that empowers us to obedience to Christ and the gospel that has set us free. When we encounter and enter the love and mercy and grace of God, it will produce a grateful, worshipful heart toward Him and a different way of living in the, toward those around us. Today, we seem to struggle with both sides of that coin. As we become convicted of our sin, we can easily slip into trying to earn the grace of God, pay Him back for the sacrifice that He made, or become deserving of His love. But perhaps more so, we can become blind to our own sin and the motives that are behind our behavior and, the, and we fail to recognize our own hypocrisy and selfishness. So with that in mind, let's now dive into James in chapter four. As is our custom here at Redeemer, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And the spirit of the Lord says through James, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts will bring life change, not only in the way we look at you and the cross and others around us, but in the way that we think and respond and in who we place our trust. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. 
The book of James is a challenge to outline. He jumps from one topic to another, kind of like the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs. He covers a lot of ground. He addresses persecution and temptation, social responsibility to the most vulnerable among us, the destructiveness of our words, poverty and wealth, partiality, favoritism, jealousy, divisiveness, pride, hypocrisy, and suffering. James recognizes the fact that we often live duplicitous lives, vacillating between pursuing God and pursuing our own desires. He rebukes the reader for being double-minded, for being like the waves of the sea, tossed back and forth, for mouths that utter both blessings and curses toward people made in the image of God. He points out how we can see someone in deep desire need that we could alleviate and yet walk right by with the trite equivalent of, God bless you, I wish you well. While there are many ways that people have sought to outline James, I think that chapter four gets to the very heart of this book. In chapter four, James will drill down past the outward issues to reach the heart of the matter, the allegiance of our hearts. He says in chapter one, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your motives. He points to the surface cause of our human conflict and that being the fact that we want things. We want possessions, stuff. We want attention. We want respect. We want to be honored and appreciated. We want to be agreed with, deferred to, affirmed, served, and even just treated fairly. Hey, that isn't all bad, right? I mean, shouldn't people be respectful and kind and appreciate and serve others? Shouldn't your boss pay you what you deserve and not overload you with work, making unrealistic demands? Shouldn't your coworker give you credit where it's due and not talk behind your back? Shouldn't your spouse give you quality time, meet your needs, respect you, help with the kids and chores, respect the hard work that you do every day, and take time to really listen to what's going on in your heart? You see, the problem isn't in the reasonableness of what we think is right, although at times our sense of right and wrong can get skewed. James says that the problem is that our passions and desires and lusts are driving us to sin against others to get what we want or feel we deserve. It's pretty simple. We want something bad enough to do whatever it takes to make sure that the other people in our life see to it that we have it. That includes God too. Either we try to get what we want ourselves, not taking our asks and needs to him, or we bring him a prayer list that amounts to a request that he, like those around us, place our desires as his top priority. Make no mistake, we worship what we love most. Our deepest affections drive our words, and our actions. Now, based on what James has just said, I would think that the next thing out of his pen would be an exhortation to not resort to such sinful activity to get what we want. In other words, stop acting like that. Work things out with people. Share, 
take turns, be kind, and use your inside voice like we tell our other kids when they act that way. But James, or actually God, who is the author of his word, says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He now moves past the surface problem to the underlying cause, and he doesn't call it combativeness or lust or greediness or unkindness. He calls it adultery. How is it that our conflicts with each other amount to adultery against God? God saved for himself a people to be his bride, the church. He redeemed us to himself, even when we were turned against him. He called us out of this world, broken by sin and a twisted sense of what's right and wrong, to be his bride, to turn away from and live a new life, to follow Jesus and be transformed by him into new creatures, to live in his kingdom for his glory, to look more like Christ our Lord day by day. When we lose sight of that and again begin to pursue our own kingdom and our glory, when life becomes about us and our agenda rather than about him, we are turning from our first love to pursue another. And that's why he calls it adultery. It costs God his very son to restore us to himself. It costs Christ his life. And for the first moment in all eternity, separation from the father, as he bore the full weight of every sin in history, including your sin and my sin. God is very jealous over us, not with a jealousy that's worldly, but with a jealousy fueled by a love purer than we can ever know. A love that pursues what is truly best for us and just and right in the universe. You see, we all live on two planes, a vertical plane that represents our relationship with God and a horizontal plane that represents our relationship with each other. When something is wrong on the horizontal plane, it is usually an indication that something is wrong on the vertical plane. I cannot hate someone or disregard their need or take advantage of them or bicker with them or sit and replay their wrongfulness and offenses over and over in my mind unless in some respect I've left my first love to begin to pursue my own kingdom, where I'm on the throne, the world's about me, my glory, my comfort, my desires, my happiness. And it's up to the world to provide that, not God. But it's not enough to just recognize the problem. We know our hearts are sinful and have led us away from God. To just sit at that point leaves us convicted and hopeless, and our loving Father never leaves us in that place. When, where we are weak, where we can't, where all our efforts only prove our inability, that is where God moves in. As he told Paul in 2 Corinthians, my power is made perfect in weakness. Where we are weak, he is strong in us. 
The Bible is one glorious story of God's multi-millennial pursuit of his bride from the garden in Genesis to Revelations. It's the story of Jesus, the groom, who has directed the unfolding of all history to bring us back to God. Christ not only made a way with his blood on the cross, he showed a way with his life. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter two about Christ being the perfect fulfillment of God's command to love God supremely and obey him perfectly as Christ laid down his life for us. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Christ is the fulfillment of every scripture. He is the faithful one who withstood Satan's urgings to be unfaithful to the Father, to take care of himself, his own needs, to arrange his circumstances, as we say, to look out for number one. In the life of Christ, we see what it looks like to love God more than the world and to love others more than ourselves. So at this point, you may be thinking, okay, I'm a mess. Jesus is perfect. How am I supposed to ever live up to that? Well, as an aside, if you grew up in a family where you had siblings who were favored by your parents, can you imagine what it would be like to be James, hearing your mom say, why can't you just be like your brother? Good luck with that. How many times have you and I really, really, really tried to change, to not fall back into those selfish sins? The path forward doesn't involve doubling up our efforts to be better or just feeling bad enough about ourselves that we resign ourselves to the fact that, well, we're only human. God certainly knows that we are not able to either save ourselves or to free ourselves from sin's grip on our hearts and minds. He is more than able to cause us to turn to him and to pursue him as our first love. As St. Augustine put it, God gives what God demands. After calling us adulterers and enemies of God, James doesn't just leave us in some sort of rejected condemnation, but moves on in verse six to say, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace is God's unmerited favor, love, and power that's provided to us, not because of merit and faithfulness on our part, but simply because of who he is and his merciful love for his people. Grace empowers, grace transforms, grace enables. But let me be very clear here. Grace is not just some sort of heavenly boost. So now we can act and live holy lives as if God is giving us some sort of a supernatural Iron Man suit so we can fly around and blast away at things. 
Oh, that would be kind of cool. Grace isn't about us. Grace is about Christ. Grace enables us to live in Christ. It is not about us having strength. He is our strength. He is the Holy One. His is the truly pure heart. His is the only heart that obeys the Father purely. He alone loves perfectly and completely. He is already overcome and we overcome in him. It is in him that we live and we move and we have our being. So often in Christ church, we, we get this wrong. We focus on how we could and should make us better, struggling and stumbling along as we consider giving up on our unsuccessful attempts at Christianized self-improvement. But real, lasting change is found only in Christ, in being united to him, in his death and resurrection. Romans chapter six makes it so clear when he says that if we are Christ's, we have left our life behind and entered in to his. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is not self-improvement. That is death and resurrection to a new life. In his life, death on the cross and resurrection and return to heaven where he lives today and forever, Christ overcame sin and death. He calls us to come experience his life every moment of every day, to be continually transformed into his image. The call of the gospel isn't just for salvation, it's for daily living in the messiness of our relationships, in our struggles with temptation, and in the pain of being broken people in a broken world. God's gift of mercy, grace, and true life in Christ is our refuge from the storm. Please hear this. In light of who he is and what it means to be in Christ, our personal wants and offenses and conflicts and lust from what we desire around it, from others around us are so trivial and empty. We have been given life in the kingdom of the God of the universe. But so often we choose instead to focus on building our own kingdoms. For us to crawl up on the humongous throne of the universe, his throne, and hold court over our little mini kingdoms isn't just wrong, it's self-destructive insanity. But that's exactly what we do when we turn against each other. In our moments of selfish conflict, we think that looking out for number one is arranging the world around us. It becomes a futile attempt to achieve a measure of fleeting happiness and self-deluded control. When the primary desire of our hearts and minds shifts from Christ to ourselves, everything starts to fall apart in life. Because I was not created for pursuing self-sufficiency. I was created for living in intimate union with the all-sufficient Lord of the universe. 
We need a clear understanding of the fact that the most infinitely powerful, all-knowing, absolutely perfect, completely pure, loving, and just being in the entire universe has, for reasons that make no sense to us, chosen not only to create us knowing that we would turn from him to pursue other loves, but to give his very life as a sacrifice in our place to pay for that turning. We need to really comprehend the implications of the fact that after this completely unwarranted rescue, God empowers us. He draws us. He loves us to move forward toward him. And the only true, perfect, completely faithful love we can ever know. The only real fulfillment and happiness that isn't fleeting all because it is his desire to shower the riches of his grace and kindness on us for his eternal glory. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's those first few verses of James again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. James now makes a significant point in these last verses that we shouldn't overlook, saying that grace is given by God to the humble. In verse six, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable or wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God provides his transforming grace to a heart orientation of humility. This is a life posture that considers others more important than ourselves. It isn't a false humility so that we can get praise and admiration, but a sincere recognition of the fact that God alone deserves the honor and praise. A heart that lives by the two greatest commandments, to love God first, and to love others second. Like Christ, who even though he was God, didn't grasp for what was truly his, but humbled himself in an obedience that was fueled by love. Humility loves well. Humility trusts God supremely with the, the situation and with the outcome. Humility serves. Humility takes its greatest joy in the object of its greatest love. God 
and the eternal well-being of those around us. James calls us to turn from looking out to lump for number one to looking upward to the one who gave himself and calls us to turn from a life of futile pursuits to the only one who can satisfy those deepest longings of our soul. The path is through sincere repentance, not a flippant mental acknowledgement that a few tweaks are needed, but a lifelong process of transformation of our heart's deepest affections because our deepest affections drive our words and our actions. In 1 Peter 5, Peter, like James, reminds us that it is God who accomplishes this in us. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, and establish you. The good news is that it isn't up to us to get our act together in our own strength, but as, rather as we focus on Jesus and move toward Jesus, it is not we by our efforts that bring change, but he by his grace that accomplishes what we cannot. James understood that we don't do good works in order to be saved, but because we are saved. However, because we're so inclined toward earning and deserving when it comes to our interactions with God and others around us, it is critical that we not see our works as a repayment back to God or that they be motivated by duty or what we ought to do, but rather the response of a heart that has been overwhelmed by the kindness and mercy and love of God, a heart that can't help but fall down in gratitude and worship to our Savior and Lord for all that he has done and is doing in our lives. Please know this, it's essential that we have an accurate view not only of our own hearts, and boy, can we deceive ourselves about our own hearts, but also the true heart and character of our Heavenly Father, if our repentance and worship and way of living are to be genuine and if they are to last. Trying to do better because we should doesn't last. And in fact, is a focus on self rather than savior. Being transformed because of the breathtaking beauty and astounding realization of who he is and what he has done changes the way we live at the deepest levels. We love not just because we should, but because we're overwhelmed by his love. That clarity of heart and mind completely changes the way we respond to God and to people around us. So the next time you feel that thing rising up in you when someone sins against you or simply won't give you what you want or treat you like you deserve to be treated. 
let it be a reminder to stop in that moment and ask yourself the question, who am I loving most right now? Myself, them, or God? Let it be a signpost of God's gracious, merciful patience to save us from ourselves and our pursuit of things that can never satisfy. And let it be an opportunity in that moment to turn from self to Savior and run to the only one who can satisfy our heart's deepest need, our spouse's our children, our jobs, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even this church were never intended by God to meet our deepest needs. Even though all these are tools in God's hands that he used to minister in our lives, Christ and Christ alone is the source of all that we could ever need, the anchor of our soul and our heart's harbor in the storms and conflicts of life. Run to Him. Let's pray. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.